Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We, we took the whole Sunday, you know, we're still going through the Bible, and we are in the New Testament now, and... Uh, of course, we've been in Acts for some time. This is our sixth message on the book of Acts. And uh, it's, it's so important, I believe. If I didn't believe it was important, we wouldn't be doing it this way. But I think it's so important to spend the time we're spending because this is the formation of the early church. We got up to about 48, 49 A.D. last week. And so we're still in the very early years of the church, and we're seeing the growth of it. We're, we're, we're observing and remembering the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he takes the Word of God to the Gentiles, the Gospel to the Gentiles. And we, uh, we spent... All of last week looking at an event known as the Jerusalem Council where Paul had uh, ministered in Antioch of Syria and then considered, uh, c- continued on through uh, north and, and west through that region and then looped back around, came back to Antioch as they visited the churches that they had started on the way out and then came back to Antioch and stayed there for some time. And while they were there, some Jews from Jerusalem, some uh, cr- believing Jews, and some people would argue that they weren't true believers. Uh, I kind of think they were, but anyway, they were, they were Pharisees who professed to be Christians, but who came to Antioch to tell these new believers, you can't really, you're not really a believer until you're circumcised, because this, is all, this all comes through Judaism. You can't go from being a Gentile to being a Christian. You have to go Gentile, Jew, Christian, because salvation is for the Jews. And this had really already been established we, we, uh, because of the event, uh, and, and Peter um, had testified to this when he went to the household of Cornelius. Uh, he saw clearly that, uh, that, that Cornelius and his household had been saved, filled with the Spirit, and so they baptized them, they welcomed them as believers, and, uh, and now this question comes, and, it, and Paul uh, and Barnabas were arguing, no, 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 we, we should not be urging these Gentile converts to be circumcised. That's not what this is about. But it became a very contentious debate, so they go back to Jerusalem, and they uh, lay the matter before the apostles and the elders. And the upshot of it was, no, Paul's right. Uh, they don't have to do that. That is not, it's, you know, uh, salvation has nothing to do with circumcision. Uh, we uh, were saved not because of our Jewishness, but because of our belief in Jesus Christ and his finished work. And so they wrote, they drafted this letter, and that's what we spent all week talking about was the letter, which said, which didn't just say you don't have to be circumcised, but said, hey, look, uh, here's, here's, here's all we're going to ask you to do is don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat things strangled or with blood, and abstain from sexual immorality. And we talked about that issue uh, because it was important. Do we talk, why, why did they throw sexual immorality into that, into that mix? I'm not going to re-preach that message, but I encourage you to check it out. And uh, it's important also because this issue keeps rearing its head in Paul's travels. It becomes quite contentious, and we see Paul dealing with it again and again in Acts, and we see, see him dealing with it uh, very forcefully and in great detail in the letters that we will read later, the epistles. So, uh, but after this, after this event, after they deliver this letter to Antioch, and they stay there for a while, they actually, they had already been in Antioch, it said, for a long time. And, uh, Riley, do you still have my glasses? 
uh, they'd been there for a long time, and then once they got back to Antioch, it said they stayed many days. And then Paul told Barnabas, you know what we need to do? We need to go back. Let's go out, and this is the beginning of what's called Paul's second missionary journey. We need to go back and visit the believers uh, that were converted under our ministry uh, on the way out. Let's go see. Let's go encourage them. And uh, Barnabas said, hey, that's great. Um, oh, it's all, let me point this out, too, just for what it's worth. It's very likely uh, that Paul also wrote Galatians while, he, while they were in Antioch. So Paul, Paul, the, the epistle of Galatians was written during this stay in Antioch. And then uh, Paul says, uh, Barnabas, let's go. Let's go visit these churches. Barnabas says, great. Let me go grab Mark, and we'll go. And Paul says, we ain't taking Mark. And Barnabas says, I'm taking Mark. And then Paul says, then you ain't coming with me. John Mark, you remember, was with them in the early days of their first missionary journey. But, and we can read this uh, in Acts chapter 15, verse 38, says, but Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, all it says back there in Acts chapter 13 is that, is that John left. John, John Mark uh, had left them. doesn't really say what the circumstances were, but Paul clearly considered this an abandonment of his post, how he'd left them. Um, uh, had not gone on with them to the work, verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I want you to see that this isn't necessarily a matter, in, uh, as I read it, of somebody was right and somebody was wrong. Uh, obviously, Barnabas, uh, who was a very encouraging person by nature, uh, was much more willing to forgive whatever slight uh, that, that uh, Paul perceived Mark had inflicted upon them. Barnabas really saw value in Mark's ministry, and Paul wasn't like, well, I think Paul's position was, yeah, sure, he's gifted, but if he's not going to stick around, he's no good to us. I'm not going to, I don't want him on this journey. But Barnabas was absolutely committed to this relationship. So rather than, and some people say, well, you never really read about Barnabas's ministry, so Paul must have been right. No, it's just that we have a record of Paul's ministry. Uh, the, the good side of this uh, is that you now had two, two teams going in different directions, different parts of the world, uh, establishing churches, encouraging the brethren, and so this thing is beginning to spread even faster. Uh, and in chapter 16... Uh, verse 1. So now, now, so now Paul and Silas, remember Paul and Silas, and of course we're going to look at one of the things Silas is most famous for, famous for here in a little bit. Paul and Silas go in one direction. It says in verse 1, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. You've heard of him too, right? It's that Timothy. Timothy of First and Second Timothy. The son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him. What? I thought we, I thought we settled this one chapter ago. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Oh, brother, we just had this whole discussion 
they travel to Jerusalem to, to lay this matter before the apostles. Now what, do we have to be circumcised or not? I say no. The Pharisees, uh, believing Pharisees, say yes. The apostles say no, they don't. We're not going to lay this on them. Obviously, we have seen with our own eyes the evidence of Greeks, Gentiles. You see the word Greeks? That's, that's, a, that's a sort of a blanket term for Gentiles. They weren't all of, of Greek nationality. It's the Greek culture. This is Roman government, a Greek culture. And so when it says Greeks, that's a, it's the Gentile world, all right? Uh, so, no, we said we have seen evidence, Cornelius was exhibit A, of Greeks coming to Christ without being circumcised. If God is going to give them the Holy Spirit, which he clearly has, without their being circumcised, why on earth would we require them to be circumcised? And so, and, and this is Paul's position, by the way. He was, he was the number one advocate of this position, and so he was thrilled that the apostles put their endorsement on this. He carries the letter back to Antioch, and they're all, they all rejoice. Yeah, we don't have to be circumcised, uh, and we're glad to do these other things. And then the very next thing, as he leaves on the on the on his second journey, takes he he uh, takes Silas with him. They they meet Timothy, who is well spoken of. Paul sees something in Timothy. This young man he says, "I need him to be a part of my team." And so, what does he do? Has him circumcised. Why? Why? Well, here's why. We're dealing with two separate issues. The issue in Antioch was. Must you be circumcised to be saved? And the clear answer was no. And of course, it wasn't just a matter of circumcision. The broader question was, must you become a Jew to be saved? And of course, the answer was no. With Timothy, number one, here's a young man who is considered Jewish because of his mother. But he had a Greek father who didn't have him circumcised. Now, in his Jewish culture, and because, remember, everywhere they go, where's the first place they minister? In the synagogue. He was going to be taking a Jewish minister into a Jewish synagogue. He had Timothy circumcised for their sake. Now, Paul could have stood his ground and said, no, and made a deal of that. Uh, you know, just, just, and, and may, you know, taking his stand on that. But this goes back to where we landed on this whole episode last week, which is it's not always, uh, the best course to stand on your rights when you need to be standing on the fulfillment of your responsibilities. What Paul says, this is exactly what Paul was talking about when he writes later to the Corinthians, to the Jews, I become as a Jew. To the Gentile, I become as a Gentile that I might, I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. And he simply knows that they are going to be much, much more receptive of Timothy if he is a circumcised Jew rather than not. So, and this kind of also speaks to what we read in James when he says, Let not many of you desire to become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. There are things that leaders must observe or should observe uh, that perhaps people uh, who are not in leadership don't have to think that hard about, all right? The average everyday believer uh, in uh, Antioch, this wasn't going to be an issue. But for a leader in a Jewish culture who is a Jew, this was an issue. And so simply out of preference to the culture as a means of reaching that culture, Timothy submitted to this, and Paul had Timothy submit to that. I hope that's, uh, 
satisfactory to you. Uh, And then reading on in chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, this is an interesting little passage. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And there's two places they tried to go to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit said no. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So I think if you read on through verse 10, uh, it, it kind of, you know, because I read those first two verses and think, what Jesus said, go into all the world. And here's Paul wanting to go into all the world. They tried to go one direction and the Spirit did not let them. So they tried to go another direction, direction and the Spirit said no. Well, why was he forbidding the preaching of the gospel? And somebody who is a... Uh, you know, hardcore predestinarian would say, uh, well, God just didn't want those people saved. God's going to save who he's going to save, and he's not going to save who he doesn't want to save. That wasn't it. It's just that Paul could only be one place at one time, and there were people in Macedonia praying for him to come there. It wasn't a matter of don't ever go here. It's like go here first. I think that's the simplest explanation. And by the way, that vision, that's a, that's a, I don't know what it is about that phrase. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Uh, this is a vision of a man, this dream he has. That, uh, I don't know how many of you uh, remember this or learned this in history. And I wish, I just thought of this actually during praise and worship, so I didn't have time to look it up. Ba- back in the, I think it was, was it called the New England Company? It was like a, almost a commercial enterprise involved in the settling of America. This was way, way before the, the revolution. We're talking back in the 1600s when, when uh, the early settlers were coming and these and people were trying to recruit uh, Europeans, uh, Englishmen in particular, to come over and settle the New World. And the seal of their company was a picture of, uh, of a Native American going, come over here and help us. And that's exactly where they took it from. It was like, this is your Christian duty to come over to the New World and help us into this uh, enlightened Christian age. Uh, it was very commercialized, but, you know, that was still where they got it. Now, uh, the next thing that happens, so they're led by the Spirit to uh, where they wind up is in Philippi, which is a city in Macedonia. And uh, they become guests of a woman named Lydia. Lydia uh, was uh, converted, saved, uh, under Paul and Silas's ministry. And uh, her family... Lydia and her household come to Christ and invite Paul and his team to stay there. So they did. They, they come as guests. By the way, did you notice anything in verse 10? Let me read uh, verse 9 and 10 again. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Everything up to this point has been in the third person. Paul did this, Silas did this, they went there, and now suddenly it's we. This is the beginning of what they call the we section. What does this mean? It means at this point Luke also joined the team. Luke is now with them. He's he's caught up to the story. He's written everything that happened up to the point of him joining, and now he is part of this entourage. Okay? So, uh, Lydia, 
Lydia and her family, they invite Paul and the team to stay there. And while they are there, they encounter this slave girl who has a spirit of divination. She's possessed. And uh, because of her quote-unquote gifts, she brought a lot of money to her masters just with her uh, ability to say things that she had no natural way of knowing. Uh, People today might call her a psychic or a mind reader or something like that. The Bible tells us she had a spirit. But here's what she was saying. These men are servants of the Most High God Hmm. who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, what's wrong with that? Because they were. (laughs) They were servants of the Most High God. They were there to proclaim the way of salvation to the Philippians. But Paul was really perturbed by this, and he turned around and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And the Spirit left her, and she could no longer uh, say things by that Spirit. And they well, why did he tell her to shut up if that's all she was saying? Well, number one, we don't know if that's all she was saying. Uh, but it's all that, all that it tells us she was saying about them. These are servants of the Most High God. They're here to proclaim the way of salvation. But Paul turns around and tells the demon to come out of her so that he would stop saying that. Why? Well, because Paul didn't want a demon's endorsement. He didn't need it. To, to say, well, yeah, yeah, listen to what she's saying, would be to give his tacit approval to her, uh, her way of life to her practice, and even to her demonic possession. So even though what was coming out of her mouth at that moment was truth, he didn't want the truth to be coming out of the mouth of a lying spirit or out of a spirit at all because the Bible explicitly forbids divination. So this girl's set free, Uh, which is kind of exciting to see an exorcism like this. And it's also interesting that Paul didn't you know, there was, they didn't have to tie her up and, and uh, speak over her for hours. He just says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. The devil leaves. And then, here's the, here's the uh, downside of this. Her owners, the people who were profiting because of her ability to say the things that she did supernaturally, they're upset. Now, they just lost their money. And so, uh, they take Paul to the magistrates, to the legal authorities, And they accuse him of stirring up trouble. And actually, they didn't go there and say, hey, he cast a demon out of our slave girl, and now she can't uh, tell the future anymore. Uh, No, they said, they're here stirring up trouble, and they're encouraging people to believe things and worship in a way that really kind of undermines Caesar. They had to couch their accusations uh, in a way that didn't make it look like they were just concerned about their financial welfare. I think these guys are a threat to Rome. No, see something, say something. Well, these guys uh, might be revolutionaries uh, when it comes to the Roman government. And so uh, the magistrates take him. They send him. They have him beaten. They laid many stripes on them and put them in prison for the night, in a dungeon or in a jail. Uh, and they weren't just locked up. Their feet were chained. They were in fetters after having been beaten. And you just read this, oh, they were beaten with many stripes and then had their feet put in stocks. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? I think sometimes we read this stuff and say, ah, it was all 2,000 years ago, half of them were ignorant savages anyway. This was probably just a part of their day-to-day life. It wasn't. Publicly beaten, put in a prison with your feet in chains. This is the situation they're in. And then in 16, chapter 16, verse 25, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
What were they doing? You guys have heard this sermon. You've heard one version of this. Most of you have probably a, a dozen times. But isn't it interesting? They're in jail. They aren't guilty of the thing that they were in jail for. They weren't in jail for casting a demon out of this girl. They were in jail for stirring up people against Rome, which they absolutely weren't doing. They had been beaten, no trial, just thrown in jail. You know, they were going to deal with them the next day. Uh, and they weren't sulking. Praise the Lord. What were they doing? They were praising God, singing hymns. It doesn't say that they were praying for their release. However, it's midnight. There would have been absolutely nothing wrong with praying for their release. And there's nothing that says they didn't earlier. Po- very possibly they say, hey, Lord, we've got places to be. You called us to minister in this place. Uh, we're, we're, we are not here uh, justly. This is a, a, an unjust, really illegal imprisonment. Get us out of here. But the thing is, even though they are in a position that they don't deserve to be in, God is always still God, God is always still good, and God is always worthy of our praise no matter what we're going through in the moment. That's the thing. They weren't praising God. Oh, thank you that we're in prison. Help us to see the good side of this because we know this is your divine will. Thank you, Lord, for these chains. No, no, no. Thank you, God, for being God. You are God and you are worthy of our praise no matter what my situation is. And, and that does not contradict saying, and oh, by the way, get us out of here. Right? So, they, uh, they got out of there all right. There, there's an earthquake, the building shook, the chains fell off, and the doors flew open for all the prisoners. And uh, the jailer, when he realized what had happened, just pulled his sword and said, I might as well kill myself. I'm going I'm to have to answer for all these prisoners escaping. And Paul hollers and says, we're all still here. None of us went anywhere. Don't do what you're thinking about doing. Put away your thoughts of suicide, as the old Farrell and Farrell song went. Jailer, we know you're petrified, but put away your thoughts of suicide. Look that song up, Jailhouse Rock by uh, Farrell and Farrell. Uh, and so they go, Paul visits, and so he falls down before Paul. Well, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul tells him. And uh, he and his household believed and are baptized, and the jailer washes uh, the wounds of Paul and Silas and uh, what a, what a glorious thing. And it's interesting now. We see the, the household of Lydia and the household of the jailer. And I love this. I see this pattern. I believe it's God's will for families to be saved. We know it's not always going to happen. Jesus talked about, listen, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. There's going to be times when your belief is going to cost you the closest relationships in your life. And when it comes to that, you have got to choose me. I am more important than your mother, your father, your brother, and your sister. But his, God's love is for families. God established families, and it's his will. And we see it working out here that households come to him. And so it's a beautiful thing. Now the jailer's household comes, comes to Christ. And then the next morning, the magistrates send the cops over to the jail to say, ah, you know what, let these guys go. We really don't have anything to hold them. And I love Paul's response here in verse, uh, we're still in chapter 16 and verse 37. Uh, Might as well read from 36. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They beat these guys without even finding out uh, if they were Roman citizens. 
which turns out they were, and they had rights. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. That's pretty bold. You know, you've just been beaten, put in prison, you've been released, and it's like, okay, you can go. I think I'll just go. I think I'll slink out of here. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You send the judge himself down here. So they pleaded with him. I think in, in, uh, included in that pleading is an apology. Look, man, I'm sorry. We didn't know you were sitting. Let's, let's, what can we do to not make a big deal out of this? Would you please just go in peace? Uh, kind of made his point, hung around long enough to encourage the people before he left. And then they went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. This is where the Thessalonians lived, right? And uh, while they were there, many believed. It says, uh, some Jews but a great many devout Greeks, including many women. And then in, uh, while they're there, you know, they're having a successful ministry. In chapter 17 now, beginning in verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, these were, so we had many, some Jews who were converted. We had a lot of Greeks who were converted, but most of the Jews weren't converted. And this is them. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring out the people. This is where they were staying. Uh, Yeah, let me read on. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is so weak, because the Jews, they hear the preaching of Paul and Silas and Timothy. I don't know how much Timothy's doing at this point. And some of them are persuaded, but more are not. Most of the converts, again, in this case, were Gentiles. The Jews are jealous of the attention that Paul and his team are getting. But rather than argue theologically, rather than sit Paul down and say, Paul, here's where we think you're wrong, and here's where we think our theological view is superior to yours. You know what they do? They go running to the civil authorities. And instead of saying, hey, because they can't. They can't go to the civil authorities and say, we disagree with what this guy is preaching. Because the civil authority, and he does, later on, just, this has nothing to do with me. Settle this, settle this among yourselves. Not here, later, in another place. He says, uh, no, what they do is they say, these men, interesting, these men who have turned the world upside down. Now, this might be a little bit of hyperbole, and yet the church and its growth and its ministers already are getting a a reputation that we should envy a little bit. Because wherever they go, societies are being transformed. The natural order of things, the natural political order even, the civil order is being altered because of the presence of churches in these cities. And now, here they are in Thessalonica, and the Jews are like, and now they're here. They're right here in our backyard. Only rather than say, these men who are preaching this gospel and converting so many people to their religion, no, they come and they couch it in in terms of civil unrest. These people who are causing so many problems in other towns and preaching a message that's contrary to being loyal to Caesar, they've come here too. It's such a weak way of doing it, to drag in the civil authorities because you can't argue with the theology. 
And keep in mind, these were Jews making this argument who, in principle, were anti-Rome to begin with. They considered Rome's rule oppressive. They wanted to see Israel, uh, again, rise and see the kingdom of God established. They wanted to see themselves on top. They resented Rome, but they're going to use Rome to their benefit just to argue and put Paul in his place. So again, very weak. So Paul and Silas slip away again. They do a lot of this. They'll preach uh, long enough to get stirred up and, and uh, their lives are threatened. And so the believers scoot them on down the road. And by the way, the believers in Thessalonica remained solid. One of the best things and the highest compliments you will read is in the opening uh, verses of uh, First Thessalonians where you see how the time they spent in Thessalonica resulted in the Thessalonians themselves preaching the gospel in regions before Paul ever got there. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Paul and Silas slip away, and they head to Berea. And once again, they head to the synagogue. But listen to this. They go to the synagogue like they always do. But this things are a little bit different here. In, in uh, chapter 17, verse 11, it says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So rather than... You know, typically, they'd go into the synagogue, they'd preach the gospel. There would be a few Jews who would say, you know what? Sounds good. I want to be a part of that. I see the logic in that. It's attractive to me. I want to be a Christian, too. And then a bunch of Greeks would come in, Gentiles, and also believe. And I think in a lot of cases, the Jews were more offended by the Greeks coming in than they were by the message itself. And that created a barrier. Well, if this is going to attract all these Gentiles, I don't want any part of it. The ones in Berea, their reaction was, let's listen to what they're saying and compare it to the scriptures before we make a decision. This is all we're going to base it on. We're not going to base it on who else is hearing it and how they're reacting. Let's look at it, compare it to the scriptures that we all know and believe, and look at this. Therefore, since they did that, verse 12, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So that's interesting that if they approach it fairly, fair-minded, I think some translations say they were more noble-minded. Uh, and they, their view was, we're going to line this up with Scripture. And since they looked at it scripturally and fairly, the conclusion they came to was, this is a true message. Jesus is the Messiah. And they, be, and they became Christians. So, moving on. Uh, then the Jews from Thessalonica actually chase him. And uh, and they they follow him to uh, Philippi, or where is he? No, not Philippi. Huh? Yeah, Berea. They chase him into Berea, and they stirred up the crowds. Hey, hey, these guys, look what they're doing. They stir up the crowds, and Paul takes off. And Silas and Timothy, they remained there for a while. They stayed back to take care of some things, but Paul gave them instructions. Join me as soon as you can in Athens, and we'll go on from there. Uh, So Paul is... uh, cooling his heels in Athens. And while he's walking around, you know, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. And while he's walking around, he sees that the city is full of idols. And as a believer in God and as a lifelong monotheist, this grieves him. So he begins to share. In verse 17, 17, it says, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now this is interesting. You know, he, This wasn't necessarily some place he was called to. This is kind of a meeting place. Big city, a lot of culture. And he's just there waiting. But while he's there, he just starts engaging people in the marketplace. A little cold contact evangelism. He does go into the synagogue, but he's also out in the marketplace. 
where all these people are. And I'm going to interrupt the story here to tell you something uh, that uh, some of you have heard this. Every student of missions is fond of this story, I think. And uh, probably the best treatment of it is in uh, Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts. Don Richardson was a famous missionary, in missionary circles anyway, who went to uh, the jungles of Irian Jaya and uh, worked there for years. He and his young wife and their seven-month-old baby living there among the natives, trying to preach the gospel and making... They had good relationships with the... uh, natives there because they brought tools and medicine and and the natives wanted to keep them there but they were making no headway into this culture until something happened and actually this is in a separate book called peace child these are both two books yeah peace child you really a maybe more readable exciting book check it out about how there was something in their culture that richardson instantly identified and said that's something i can use to demonstrate the gospel it was this act of sacrificing a child or giving a child to another tribe not actually killing it uh, in order to make peace between these nations and and Richardson was able to take that saying that's what God did gave his son uh, to to make peace with man and this led him to a lifelong conviction that in every culture God has left clues about himself he calls them redemptive analogies and this and he opens eternity in their hearts with this story that uh, true story by the way that uh, back in 600 B.C., there was a plague in Athens. People were sick. People were dying. And because this was even back in 600 B.C., there were many gods among the Athenians. They sacrificed and uh, cried out to their gods. They did everything they knew, and nothing was stopping this plague. And so they went and visited some oracle Uh, for advice and uh, she tells them there's a man named Epimenides in Crete you need to go see him bring him over he'll tell you what to do and so they go they take some money to Epimenides they invite him to come over he comes and uh, basically tells them uh, yeah I agree with you this plague is supernatural in origin but since you have sacrificed to every god you know we have to come to the conclusion that you have offended a god you don't know You've made your sacrifices, you've made your pleas, and it hasn't worked. Uh, You know, let's operate on the assumption that there is a God great enough and good enough to stop this plague if only you will cry out to him. So he says, here's what we want to do. And what he tells him to do, it takes these uh, hungry sheep, brings them out first thing in the morning in this meadow outside Athens, a little succulent grass, and this is the time all the sheep would naturally be grazing uh, and they and they pray. They say, uh, uh, "Lord, you know, give us a sign." And one by one, these sheep just lay down. They're not eating. They just stop in place and they and they rest. If one or two had done this, they would have thought, "Well, they got a couple of sickies." But these sheep just lay down. And so Epimenides instructs them: get some stonemasons out here, and everywhere there is a sheep lying on the ground, build an altar and sacrifice the sheep on that altar. And so they're preparing the sacrifices, and somebody asks, we need to put the God's name on this altar. What do we call him? And Epimenides says, the only hope you have of this God hearing you is your humility in recognizing that you don't know his name. That's the whole point of this. So if you have to put something on this altar, put to an unknown God. So they do. 
They make the sacrifice, and the plague is stopped. And this story was remembered in Athenian culture 600 years later when Paul is there in the Areopagus, Mars Hill. He's talking to the philosophers, and he tells them, in uh, chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, uh, since he gives to all life, breath, and things, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Do you know the name of the poet he is quoting there? It's Epimenides. The same guy who 600 years ago had directed this sacrifice. He's the one who wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. Now he was talking about Zeus, Epimenides, in this poem. Okay, And he was putting the words in one of the character in the poem's mouth. It's a long story. Doesn't matter. It's interesting though. And I don't know if Paul, how well Paul knew that story. I don't know if Paul just saw this altar and said, to an unknown God, there's something, there's a good jumping off point. There's something I can use to open my sermon with. I don't know if he knew the story of Epimenides, but it's probable that the Athenians did. And then Paul turns around and quotes Epimenides in his sermon. Again, whether he knew it or not. Then he goes on. Uh, and this is interesting. We'll just read a few more verses because we have what essentially looks like a whole sermon here, even if it's abbreviated. It's one of the few times we get Paul's whole message. And so in verse 29, it says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he appointed a day He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, he preaches this message from their culture. Hey, look, hey, i, I got to hand it to you guys. I don't think he was being insulting. Uh, some people say when he said, hey, I perceive in all things that you're very religious, that he was uh, insulting them for their overly religious nature. He wasn't. I think he's, he's trying to open this conversation with a compliment. I'm glad that you're spiritually interested. I'm glad that you are sensitive to man's need for something beyond himself. Uh, in fact, while I was, you guys really have all your bases covered. You've got idols to this God, this God, this God, and you're covering all your bases. You've even got a statue to the unknown God. That's the God I want to tell you about because you don't have a statue to him. You don't have an altar to him. This is the God who made everything. All these other idols, 
they really are meaningless because God made the stuff, the God I'm preaching, made the stuff these, are, these idols are carved out of. We really are all created by God. In that sense, we are all his offspring. Therefore, we really ought to reach out to him, obey him. And he has overlooked this ignorance for all these years. But now has come the time when he's revealing his will to all mankind, warning us that he's going to judge the world by one man. And he's already put a stamp of approval on this man by raising him from the dead. Now, I'm not sure I 100% agree with this, but Don Richardson, who was writing about this, points out that he thinks Paul made a mistake here by jumping to the resurrection without first talking about why Jesus had to die. Because it said, now, when they heard about the resurrection, that's when he kind of lost them. Now, some believed, but they're like listening because these are philosophers, and they wanted to hear. They said, let's hear what this babbler has to say, because this is what they did all day. They hung out at Mars Hill and, and had philosophical discussions. And so they invite Paul, and they're listening. Huh, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. And then Paul says, they ra- God raised him from the dead, and they're like, what is this? Now, suddenly, we're talking about resurrection myths. Where does this resurrection thing come into this? Well, Maybe Paul was just kind of in a hurry. Maybe, you know, again, he's just, he's killing time anyway. He knows he's not going to camp out there and tell him the whole story. And there's nothing wrong with leading with the resurrection, depending on who your audience is. But he kind of lost him at that point, didn't he? They start mocking him. And this is important too. And it kind of goes back to, once again, reinforcing the importance of understanding the Old Testament. Without knowing something about the Old Testament, you really don't understand why Jesus had to die. You know, you see that it's driven home again and again from the garden on, all through the law, the sacrifice system, the Passover, of course, and the whole idea of judgment. The soul that sins shall die, right? Death is what happens as a result of sin. Somebody has to die. And so Jesus dying because of our sin becomes the central message of the gospel. And Paul kind of skips over that to the resurrection. Again, it's just, it's interesting. It doesn't change the course of history here or anything because this is just kind of a stopover. What I just want you to see, and praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here, is that, you know, and again, I'm not giving my blanket endorsement of the whole idea of redemptive analogies. It's interesting to see how many examples of that there had been in cultures down through the ages. But apart from concrete examples like that, the principle is this, that God is ordering our steps. He is not just, we see it on, on one end of the of, of the. Of the uh, order of events, we see Paul wanting to go in such and such a place and God saying, no, don't go there. Doesn't tell him exactly what mechanism God used to keep them from going into Asia. Just said we wanted to go there and we were prevented. The Spirit forbade us to go. Did they have a word? Was there a prophecy? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? We just know they were led by the Spirit not to go a certain place. And then they were given a dream, given a vision, a person in Macedonia, come over here and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So they're led that way. So on one end of the chain of events, they have God telling them where to go. On the other end, we see God preparing the hearts of the people they are going to. This is where I want our confidence to be raised. That yes, we are seeking God. God, send me. Tell me what you want me to do. 
but then also understanding that the people he's sending us to and the situations he's sending us into are things that he is also preparing. Even in Athens, where we don't have what looks like anyway, a word from the Lord from, to Paul saying, go to the Areopagus and preach. He still was preparing their hearts via culture 600 years ago for this conversation. He's God. He can do that. And I want us to have the confidence that when we go into this, we pray for opportunities. We're not just praying for opportunities for us to, well, this looks like a place where I could shoehorn Jesus into the conversation. We have to believe that the people we're talking to are people that God himself is dealing with on his own. We have no idea what they are waiting to hear from us. But we can believe that if God is ordering our steps, he's not wasting time. He's putting us there. And we say, well, but I did have a conversation. And nobody prayed. Nobody got saved. But that conversation might be part of what he's doing to prepare them for a conversation with the next person. He might be using that conversation for the next conversation you have with them. Don't give up. We are supposed to be out there preaching the gospel. That's what this church does, right? We live the gospel. We enjoy the benefits of salvation. We live the gospel, meaning we submit our lives uh, to our God as father and king. Because this is a kingdom. And we preach the gospel. Because that is what this is all about. It's not just about us getting saved. It's not just about us enjoying our life and going to heaven. It's about us sharing this life-saving message with the world. It is what we ultimately must be about. And we must believe and rejoice that it's God's power at work in us that's going to make that effective. Go ahead and stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.